This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders throughout the GEM state. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community health care, the welfare of you and me. O is for the outcomes, that's the story we can tell. ECHO all together, well, you know what that spells. Echo Today's episode features a presentation by Stacy Seib, maternal fetal medicine physician at St. Luke's Health System in Boise on the topic of medications and substances in pregnancy. This lecture was recorded on March 24th, 2021, as a part of Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorders series. Here to introduce the series panelists and today's presenter is Echo Idaho's former director and session facilitator, Lachelle Smith. Welcome. My name is Lachelle Smith, and I am the director of Echo Idaho. Very pleased to facilitate the conversation today in our perinatal substance use disorder series. We will be very glad to hear from Dr. Stacey Saib, who's maternal fetal medicine at St. Luke's on medications and substances in pregnancy, exposure, and risk. And let's hear from our um, panelists who are leading the program, and then we will give the floor to Dr. Saib. So let's hear from Nicole, Dr. Fox, Larissa, Radha, Sadacharan, Jerry Woodworth, and then Stacey Sang. Dr. Fox. Hello, I'm Nicole Fox. I am a lead psychiatrist at St. Luke's. I practice in a Boise hospital and I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Larissa Janishek. I'm a neonatal nurse practitioner at St. Luke's Children's Hospital. I've been here for about 23 years and I'm very pleased to be here. Hi, I'm Ratha Sedatorian. I'm a family med doc at the Boise VA. I do some primary care and addiction med and worked in correctional health for quite a few years doing some MAT. I'm Jerry Woodworth. I'm a nurse at St. Luke's Maternal Fetal Medicine. I'm the care coordinator for our support clinic, which is our perinatal substance use program. Wonderful. And Stacy, if you will introduce yourself and then you can just take it away. Hi, I'm Stacy Seib. I'm a maternal fetal medicine doc here at St. Luke's. Yeah, Jerry and I work together with our sort of substance use and all behavioral things that follow with that uh, clinic uh, for pregnancy, hoping to intervene when we can and help families get off to a good start. I'm going to talk today about medications and the substances in pregnancy, kind of, you know, what is the risk of exposure and give everybody a broad outlook of that. So I think we're going to just kind of review how substances and medications can affect mom and baby. And, you know, the effects are different during different parts of the pregnancy. may touch on harm reduction a little bit, but more importantly, uh, how do we try to evaluate the risk-benefit ratio for women and their babies and get the best outcome we can for the pregnancy? And then maybe toss out some of the common medications and substances that we all encounter with women who show up pregnant. So go way back to a guy by the name of Wilson who came up with the six rules of teratology. Dr. Seib is referring here to James G. Wilson, a notable embryologist and anatomist who lived during the mid-20th century. For those who may not be familiar with this term, teratology is the scientific study of congenital abnormalities and abnormal formations. 
and they're basically stated right here. And that is genetic makeup can influence whether a particular being, biologic animal, etc., are susceptible to a particular substance. The stage of life of exposure influences that susceptibility. Agents do tend to act in specific ways, especially agents that tend to be from very similar types of drug groups or, you know, similar types of agents. And then the stage of exposure not only changes the susceptibility, but it also might determine how it manifests itself. Um, And then certainly how quickly does mom get rid of the substance? And then does the substance actually cross the placenta? And of course, dose response effects. Small doses probably don't have quite as much an effect as large doses. So when we're looking at the stage, I think to make it really, really simple, so to speak, is teratogen, which is basically a word for structural defects, is pretty much in the first part of the pregnancy, kind of from 31 to 71 days past the last menstrual period kind of seems to be the most susceptible times. Extremely early does not necessarily lead to structural defects, but, you know, say after the neural tube is what creates our spines and spina bifida is something that we think of when it comes to those defects. Well, that pretty much closes by eight weeks. The heart is certainly eight to 10 weeks, pretty well formed in what it's going to look like. But then through the rest of the pregnancy, we have organ growth and brain development. So what we're going to see during that part of the pregnancy would be possibly growth restriction, or sometimes because the brain is is such an evolving organ, there's, you know, probably as much or more theoretical issues than we actually see when it comes to affecting the brain. But again, it is something to keep in mind. Um, And then of course, after a baby's born, immune function could be affected. An example would be chemotherapy. We use um, chemotherapy for say breast cancer in pregnancy, but we do stop it at least four to six weeks before the baby's born in an attempt to make sure that any sort of leukopenia is improved and baby has good immune function at the time of birth or, as we're all thinking, probably withdrawal from opioids or or similar uh, type substances. Neonatal abstinence syndrome is probably the major issue when it comes to opioids and opiates. You know, none of the opioids have been shown to be teratogenic. So they really don't cause any sort of birth defect. And so I think you can always reassure maybe moms that are uh, using, you know, whatever opioid or, or medications, certainly illicit drugs we can't speak to because who knows what might be uh, contained in some of those. But again, neonatal abstinence is just the baby's withdrawal from a physiological standpoint. And when we talk about opioids, what type of harm do they cause? You know, some people are like, well, let's just withdraw someone. It's like, oh, gosh, you can never take someone off these medications. And if someone does choose and maybe is a good candidate to be pulled off and stop any sort of opioid, that's not necessarily a bad thing. The harm is when a patient uses enough to go through repetitive withdrawal. 
And so what I would point to here is this is kind of the natural history of opioid use. When someone first starts using opioids, you know, they kind of bounce back and forth between feeling normal and the high that they're getting out of it. Well, as tolerance develops, that euphoria is no longer really present or it takes much higher doses every time. And that moves into an area where people start using so that they are actually just trying to feel, get themselves into the normal zone keep themselves out of withdrawal. And when you do have this repetitive withdrawal, that's something that can be very harmful uh, to pregnancies. Blood pressures go up. The whole physiology of mom is, is obviously very uncomfortable and abnormal. Other substances to think about are certainly our amphetamines, methamphetamines, the stimulants in general, none of them are good. I mean, and I think whether it's over-the-counter phenylephrine, whether it is illicit amphetamines, even possibly some behavioral control things like Ritalin are going to raise blood pressure, probably increase the chance of having a growth-restricted baby, as does tobacco. Again, none of these things necessarily lead to any sort of outright birth defect, but it can affect the pregnancy more in the long-term growth and that second part of the pregnancy, so to speak. Fetal alcohol syndrome, I think is pretty well known. I think in general, there's no safe level of alcohol. And this is also a substance that not only earlier in pregnancy can lead to birth defects, but I think it is something that we feel like even if it's used in the second half of the pregnancy, certainly in large enough doses, can still tremendously affect behavioral development and brain growth. Marijuana, well, um, the literature is all over the place, but I do think there is, particularly in heavy users, issues with fetal growth, behavioral issues, similar neurodevelopment. Um, but we, we really don't have anything, say, as definitive as we do, either looking at tobacco or alcohol. So... So what are the risks and benefits? I mean, that's what we do every day and every intervention has a potential risk and does the benefits of, of whatever we're doing outweigh the risk? And that's kind of the center of patient-centered care and, you know, making sure we're involving the patient in their own care. So one of the things that has probably not been one of the greatest tools that was developed are the A, B, C, D, and X categories that have been used by the FDA for many, many years. The ABCDX categories that Dr. Seib is referring to here are also known as the FDA pregnancy categories. This is a five-letter labeling system that was implemented by the FDA in 1979 to indicate the potential level of risk a particular medication posed to a pregnant patient. There is not much difference between each of these, and one of the reasons is, is because we have failed to include women and pregnancy in trials of drugs to determine how safe something is or is not. And I'm going to summarize these a little bit. Category A is no risk seen in animal studies and human studies. You have an adequately controlled, double-blinded study and no risk. Yeah, well, there aren't many of those that many manufacturers or various researchers have taken on in the past because it was thought to be unethical. Now, that is changing rapidly right now. The Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine is actually working hard to try to say, you know, it's actually unethical and convince uh, organizations that we do need to get pregnancy included in many of our uh, trials. Now, similarly, category B, if you either have no risk demonstrated and no human studies 
that's kind of the equivalent of, well, we are seeing this in rats, but what we've seen in humans so far looks good. You know, and again, that needs to be an adequately controlled study. And then if we go to category C, basically whether or not there's animal risk noted, it's still kind of the middle of the road. And basically it's not particularly helpful. And uh, category D, well, there are some reported cases or issues that are happening frequently enough that there should be concern. And of course, category X is we have clearly documented risk. So having said that, I don't know how many people are aware, but in 2014, the FDA decided to be phasing out the uh, ABCDX labeling. And because it's so inconclusive, change to try to say, actually, people who are you know, reviewing medications should utilize the data that is available. And they break it up into three different areas. First part is in reproductive age, males and females what types of things are potentially an issue. And that could be around pregnancy, contraception, and fertility. You know, how will these medications affect those? Then there will be another segment on pregnancy itself. And, you know, many drugs have pregnancy exposure registries, which are, you know, they're helpful, but as you can imagine, uh, very biased either one way or the other, um, usually with the bad things that might be happening in someone who's been exposed to a drug. Then there should be a risk summary and, you know, are there any particular clinical indications or considerations within pregnancy? And then if there is some data, what does that look like? Similarly, we're going to do the same thing for lactation because it's, it's similar, but a different animal. What is that risk summary like? The clinical considerations, how much of a particular substance actually is uh, excreted in breast milk. And so, because sometimes these things are still a little vague, and for a non OB or non pediatrician, and even amongst all clinicians, the risk can be interpreted differently. I think that's uh, one of the things that we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about medications what will be best for the pregnancy? and the baby overall, and mom for that matter. So, for example, in mental health treatment, we're pretty clear that people with mild issues probably are not at huge risk of poor outcomes in their pregnancy. But uh, people who have moderate to severe disease, such as bipolar, will experience a relapse rate in the 50 to 70% versus maybe as high as 20%. You know, pregnancy still has a tendency to exacerbate these conditions. And, you know, how does this affect it? Well, of course, poor judgment, risk-taking behaviors, uh, self-harm or non-compliant behavior, substance use relapse. Um, we do see increased rates of growth restriction because of some of the behaviors and, and preterm birth all kind of follow along with that as well. We see higher rates of abruption, low APGARs, For listeners who may not be familiar, abruption describes the separation of the placenta from the wall of the uterus. The APGAR score reflects the need for newborn support or resuscitation right after birth. And then, of course, the postpartum risks, depression and relapses are very high. And, you know, that's not a great way to start out a new baby's life with uh, the inability to bond and parents unable to parent. 
All right. So we think about prescription medications a little bit, and these are some of the common things that we come across. We try to use them balancing the actual risks. For example, in most you know psychiatric meds with the SSRIs, the SSRIs in particular, um, paroxetine had, is the only one that's kind of had a bad name for a little while, and that's because there was a small study that indicated some risk. And of course, when I say studies, these are population-based retrospective type studies, which paroxetine has now been cleared um, up along that way. It hasn't been a uh, randomized, double-blinded study or anything like that. Seroquel and trazodone all seem to be safe. You know, Ritalin we're not so fond of, as I talked about with the medications that are amphetamine-like. Having said that, Ritalin itself, I think for its positive effects is probably a much lower dose than someone who's abusing amphetamines. And so, you know, depending on someone's uh, behaviors and their risk, it could be considered. Uh, certainly anti-epileptics, valproic acid is the one who probably over the years, the you know neural tube defects have been an issue. You know, we're still talking an absolute risk in a two to three percent at the most. But I think in general, it's great that we're getting away from that. The newer generation anti-epileptics seem to be much, much safer without this risk. And uh, yeah, we use a lot of lamotrigine, uh, tapiramate, not a lot, but we see people that are using those and, you know, Keppra especially. So kind of the key points around this, birth defects themselves, primarily an issue of the first trimester. Risk benefits of medication should be discussed at length with the patients before changes are made. You know, one thing that really, really bothers me is to have a patient come to us who the provider just kind of did, you know, what I would call a peek and shriek and just yanks the patients off all their medications before even calling or, you know, hey, uh, hey, we'll get you in right away. So someone who does like what I do, who's comfortable with trying to evaluate that risk benefit has a chance to weigh in. And has the patient had a chance to weigh in? You know, what are the absolute risks? Certainly, we want to make sure that we're clear on what the potentials are, either for relapse of a disease state versus the potential risk from the medication itself. And then finally, uh, remember pregnancy is an opportunity to impact maternal health, family health. It's a time where we can uh, maybe intervene, maybe get people more involved in their own care. Jerry, I'm wondering if you can weigh in on what the patient education component looks like. Do you have any catchphrases or like go-tos that help communicate some of this conversation to patients who are maybe worried about this or common fears or misconceptions that you see in clinic? Yeah, you know, like like Stacy said. Speaking here is Jerry Woodworth, OB nurse at St. Luke's Health System in Boise and panelist for Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. We get so many people that they're uh, primary care providers have taken them off of their medications. You know, you got the positive pregnancy test, you can't take anything. And so I, we try to explain to patients when they come to see us that, yes, it is okay. These are the ones that we say are okay. And sometimes it, it's a, a difficult conversation to have because their OB provider has said, no, don't take it. And then we say, well, it's okay to take it. And, and patients don't really know, you know, who do I believe? So 
Um, Stacy had some great resources there. We use Mother to Baby a lot. We give people written um, handouts a lot of times to take home to family members because that's another one. Family, you know, mom, grandma. You know, my grandma says I shouldn't take this because it's not good for the baby. You know, meantime, I've had three or four suicide attempts in my life. You know, it's better to be on the SSRI because you need it and it works for you and keeps you stable than to to risk what could happen without it. Larissa, do these conversations come up in the NICU? Oh, sure. The, one of the biggest things we deal with is guilt. This is Larissa Janishek, neonatal nurse practitioner in the neonatal intensive care unit at St. Luke's Health System in Boise and a panelist for Echo Idaho's perinatal substance use disorder series. Guilt, guilt, guilt. I think the biggest thing I see is the concern about lactation then at that point, right? And a lot of the mothers I see now pregnancy is over. I'm sure I can deal with things better now. Um, I, if I want to breastfeed my baby, if there's any risk, then they want to stop their medication. And just like everybody else has said, we just encourage moms that their stability is what really promotes baby stability. And the better they take care of themselves in every aspect, the better they'll be able to take care of their baby. That was a recording from our 2021 Echo Idaho Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series Archive featuring Stacy Seib, maternal fetal medicine physician at St. Luke's Health System in Boise, presenting medications and substances in pregnancy. That lecture was recorded live as a part of Echo Idaho's 2021 Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. PowerPoint slide deck, as well as information about how to contact some of the organizations and services mentioned in that talk, are available in our podcast show notes on our podcast webpage, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Season two of Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible with funding provided by BJA, the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. Something for the Pain was supported by grant number 15PBJA21GG04557COAP, awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the SMART Office. Points of view or opinion 
opinions in this recording are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. We'd like to thank the other contributing voices on today's episode. Stacy Seib, Nicole Fox, Larissa Janishek, Rachel Root, Radha Sadacharan, Allison Smith, Jerry Woodworth, and Lachelle Smith. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Echo.